Everybody, please find your seats. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Good to see you. We're again today looking at the Genesis flood. Last week, we read the entire flood account. We noted the level of detail regarding the timing of the flood and how it just further points to the fact that we are looking at true history. This was written as history, not as myth, not as an extended allegory, not as hyperbole. We also saw how emphatic the account of the flood is when it comes to every land and air creature except those on the ark as dying in the flood. It was indeed a global catastrophe with absolute destruction. But there's still another question. Could Moses have been exaggerating when he said all creatures on earth died? Could he have meant all creatures in only a certain area? After all, the Hebrew word that is translated earth throughout these passages in Genesis, it can also be translated land. So perhaps we're only talking about a certain land and not necessarily all the land that is on earth. Could the Genesis flood have been a local flood? Is it possible, moreover, that all land creatures and people only existed in one place during those days so that you could have, let's say, a certain valley in which everyone lived and a flood coming upon that valley and truly destroying all flesh because they only lived in that one small area? Could the rest of the earth have been undisturbed? We're going to talk about these ideas head on today as we really seek to answer the question, was the flood global or not? Now, the answer to this question has implications for whether we can really trust what the Bible says, how we are to understand the geological and paleontological record, so that rock layers and fossils that we find today, and also whether God is really a God who keeps his promises. There are a number of important issues tied up with the question of whether the, the flood was global or not. Well, we're going to approach this main question from a couple different angles. Here's our agenda. We're going to re-examine some key descriptions of the flood in Genesis 7 to 8. We're going to test the rainbow promise of God given in Genesis 9. And we're going to consider some of the flood legends and extra biblical evidence that has to do with whether the flood was global or not. Let's pray before we continue. Our great God, thank you for your word. Help us to be able to understand it this morning. Help me to be able to explain it. Help me to be accurate and helpful. And God, I pray that we would have a greater confidence in your word and in its true interpretation, but also a a greater appreciation of the forces that we are up against that would have us compromise what your word actually says in order to fit with man's ideas. I pray, Lord, that you'd protect us from that impulse, but that we would stand upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start in Genesis chapter 7. Please open your Bibles there. We've already read the whole flood narrative, but this time 
we want to look at just a few sections, Genesis 7 and 8, and examine some details that are particularly relevant for whether the flood was truly global or not. We're starting in Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 to 12. And you see some other verse references there. We'll be looking at each of those, each of those ones. So Genesis 7, verses 11 to 12, follow along with me as I read. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I'll skip down to verses 17 to 24. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he, and that's God, blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now finally look at the first two verses of chapter eight. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained. Now from these details, we want to make some certain observations. Notice what words and ideas are repeated in these sections of text. First of all, we see a lot of inclusive language. The word all and every is used multiple times, not just to describe the death of living things, but also how the waters even prevailed upon the earth. And we do see 40 days and 40 nights, that description repeated. We see just repeated the, the phrases fountains of the great deep and floodgates of the sky. Also see the idea of rain being repeated and the idea of prevailing and increasing when talking about the water. That is repeated multiple times in the text. And note precisely from where the floodwaters came. We have floodgates of the sky and fountains of the great deep. And notice the first reference actually says all the fountains of the great deep. Notice how high the waters rise in the flood. And it says all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered, covered by water. And the water prevailed 15 cubits higher. Ah, now there's that cubit again. Remember, a cubit is an ancient measurement of length of about 18 to 20 inches the length of the elbow to the fingertips. And to get a better idea of what this detail about cubits 
actually means, let's work with a cubit of about 20 inches and do a little bit of math. If the water prevailed 15 cubits higher than the highest mountain peaks on Earth at that time, how many feet above those mountains was that? So the math here would be 15 cubits times 20 inches, 20 inches per cubit, and that gives you 300 inches. But we don't want inches, we want feet. So how many feet are in 300 inches? 300 inches divided by 12 inches per foot, and you get 25 feet. So if we're working with a cubit of about 20 inches, the waters on the Earth were so high that they were even 25 feet above the highest mountains, all the high mountains everywhere. This is how high the waters rose above the Earth. Now, with this data, let's consider a theor theoretical situation. Imagine a valley surrounded by high mountains with the ark sitting in the middle. And let's say a flood happens only in this valley. The waters begin to rise and so does the ark. And finally, the water reaches the tops of the mountains. What would happen if the water were to rise even slightly above the mountains of this valley? It would spill over, right? It would just go right over to the other side. That's just how water works. That's how gravity works. So is it possible for water to cover the hills or mountains of this valley by 25 feet and still be contained in the valley? No, it's, no, it's clearly not. We would have some sort of ridiculous situation like what this picture simulates. It's, it's clearly absurd. And that's important for us to realize. Let's now talk about some interpretation questions. Besides the descriptions of universal death, what from even these few passages we've re-examined plainly indicates the flood had to have been global? Namely what we just looked at, right? The water covered the high mountains, all the high mountains everywhere by at least 20 feet. You can't have that and have a local flood. And besides, is causing a global flood beyond the ability of God? Surely not. He is God. And that's what the text leads us to understand. Now, what about these fountains and floodgates? The phrases fountains of the great deep and floodgates of the sky are at least partly metaphorical. There are no actual gates in the sky. So to what do they actually refer? All right, so yeah, this is a more straightforward than we might think. The floodgates of the sky, that's just talking about rainfall. And the fountains of the great deep, these are underground springs, underground uh, sources of water. And because it says of the great deep, that's usually a term connected with the oceans. These look like they are some sort of ocean springs, probably underneath the crust of the earth, gushing water into the oceans and even into the air. So this water was probably actually very hot when it came out of the earth, and it may have actually produced the rain clouds and the waters from above, or at least was partly related to that. Yeah, so these 
these two terms, they're just talking about rain and water from being brought under the earth, even under the oceans. Now, do appreciate that because that means we're having a lot of water coming from two different sources, from above and below. And as I noted, it wasn't just fountains of the Great Deep, but all the fountains of the Great Deep. So you can imagine that was a lot of water. Now, based on these verses and just these, these two follow-up questions that we've just answered, could the author of Genesis been intending to communicate that he was he was describing a local flood and not a global flood. No, there's no ambiguity here. It's not like, well, you know, it could have been local. You could, it could fit both ways. No, there's only one way to take this text. The details here, they indicate a global flood, a flood where the water actually covered the entire planet, the entire Earth. Now, some people assert that it was a local flood that had universal effects. I even mentioned this a little bit at the beginning. They assert that all those who were affected by the flood, they lived in the same place that Noah did. Therefore, when the flood came, all creatures on earth were affected because they were all living in that one area. Now this assertion is convenient because it allows the person to seemingly confess the global effects of the flood while also keeping intact presuppositions about fossil layers being built up over millions of years and remaining undisturbed by the flood. But why should we reject the assertion that the flood was local but had global effects? What does Genesis 7:19 say? Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Genesis 7:19, that particular detail and these others we've examined, the same reason we reject a local flood is the reason we reject a local flood with global effects. You can't have all the high mountains everywhere being covered by at least 20 feet of water and still have a local flood. The descriptions of Genesis indicate global water coverage. And besides, it's silly to think that no animals or people would live outside Noah's area. I mean, how many years after creation is the flood taking place? According to Genesis 5, the genealogy there, if we just add up the years in that genealogy, we're talking 1,650 years. Considering the extremely long lifespans of man at that time and animals, they probably lived longer, and their reproductive capacity, it makes no sense to say that people and animals only lived in Noah's area, including the birds. You're saying no bird lived outside that area? So by now, it should be clear that Moses was communicating that the flood really happened and that it was a global event. It was treated as history by Moses, and it was treated as global history. But there's more. God's covenant involving the rainbow in Genesis 9, it proves that the flood had to have been global. And let's examine this now. Look at Genesis 9, verses 8 to 17. Genesis 9, 8 to 17, and just recall the context here. By this point, the flood has finished. It's lasted more than a year. Noah and his family and the animals, they've come out of the ark. Noah has just finished offering sacrifices to God, and God is pleased with Noah and his sacrifice, and God makes a number of promises, starting with this one in verse 8. So Genesis 9, starting in verse 8. 
Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle and every beast of the earth with you of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, nor there shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now let's make some observations on this section. Notice that we have God speaking to Noah and his sons, but notice with whom is the covenant. Verses 9 to 10 say, say this covenant is with Noah and his sons and their descendants, as well as all the land and air animals on the earth. The covenant is even said to be with the earth itself. We often refer to this covenant as the Noahic covenant. But truly, this covenant embraces all creatures that were dwelling upon the earth and would dwell upon the earth. Notice who establishes this covenant. God. Notice what is promised in this covenant. God says he will never again destroy all the earth, or he'll never again destroy the earth and all its inhabitants with water. If we just look back briefly at Genesis 8.21, God makes a similar promise at the end of that chapter. Genesis 8.21 Genesis 8, says, The Lord, that's Yahweh, smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. The way I just destroyed the earth, I will never do that again. Now notice, what are the terms for God keeping this covenant in place? What does man need to do? What do the people on earth need to do? Yes, there are no terms. Right, right. There are no terms. Actually, as we just read, God acknowledges man's unchanged and continual wickedness. He says, I'm not going to flood the earth again, for man is evil from his youth. Those don't seem like they go together, but that's the way God expressed it. It's not as if this covenant is enforced only if man cleans up his act. Far from it. And yet God says, this is my covenant for all successive generations. It is even called an eternal covenant. There's no seeing an end to this covenant. And now notice the rainbow. It's not actually called a rainbow in the text, but just a bow. Now, what is a bow? A bow is a weapon of war. In English, we have bow to describe also those, you know, frilly ribbon things. But this word in Hebrew actually just indicates a ranged weapon, not even necessarily a shape. It's, it does have a certain shape, 
The shape and curvature of a rainbow does indeed look like the weapon that many Israelites would have used and have been familiar with, but it is called a bow here. God says, or rather notice the purpose for God setting his bow in the clouds. The text says it's for God to see and remember. When he looks at the bow in the clouds, he will remember his covenant and will not send another flood of the same destructive magnitude. By implication though, when man sees the bow in the clouds, he will also remember this covenant from God. Now, how long ago from today was this covenant given? If we use, again, the information from the Genesis genealogies, particularly Genesis 11, then we have the flood occurring around 2350 BC. It's almost 2220 AD now. So if we just add those two numbers together, we would see how long ago this covenant was made. 2350 plus 2220, we get 4,570 years. That would be how long ago this covenant was established. And are rainbows still evident in the sky today? Of course they are. We see them all the time. And they are very beautiful. Now let's ask some more interpretation questions. What is the significance of God choosing a bow as the sign of his covenant? Now, perhaps the only significance is the shape. But I think there's more. Because God didn't have to use this term, didn't have to use this sign as a sign of the covenant. In saying that he set his bow in the cloud, it's like God is saying he's hung up his weapon. God has laid aside the bow of flood judgment, and he promises never to take it up again. He's put that weapon, he's put that bow in the cloud for all to see that it is truly laid aside. Thus, seeing a rainbow should both sober us and assure us, because, in a sense, we glimpse the weapon that once destroyed the whole earth. But we also see that it's been laid aside. God keeps his promise never to use this weapon again. Indeed, has there ever been another flood that covered the entire globe since God made this covenant? No, there hasn't. There's only been this one global flood. So which attribute of God does this covenant pictured in the rainbow particularly emphasize? The rainbow is a great sign of. It does picture his mercy. It does picture his holiness and wrath. Because it was, it was indeed the weapon that destroyed the earth. But God also had mercy. He wouldn't do that again. And he spared Noah in the flood. But I think there's something even more emphasized here. Yeah, Dwayne. His faithfulness, for sure. 4,570 years, and he's kept his word. There has never been a flood like the one that destroyed the earth. Except, of course, if you take it as a local flood. Have there been many local floods since God made this covenant? Floods that even devastated vast areas of land, killing man and killing animals. Well, there, there have. There have been many of them, and they still occur today. So how does believing in a local flood make God an unfaithful covenant breaker? 
You can see the logic, can't you? If the flood was indeed local and God promised he would never again flood the world as he had done, then God has clearly violated that promise thousands of times. Local floods have plagued humanity throughout history, and they continue to do so. So the bow, the rainbow, far from being a sign of God's faithfulness, it would be the greatest sign of God's hypocrisy if the flood were truly local. You see, there are so many problems when it comes to trying to take the Genesis flood as anything other than a global cataclysm. As we've already seen today, the language of the flood account emphasizes universal death and destruction. The description of the rising water makes the local flood impossible. The rainbow covenant would be no promise at all if it were only about a local flood. It would be a lie. But there's even more than that. Consider, if the flood were a local event, then the ark wasn't necessary at all. What could Noah and the rest of the people on earth at that time, what could they have done to escape the flood if it were only a local flood? Exactly. Just leave the area. Go to higher ground. They could have simply migrated. Or when it comes to repopulating the earth afterwards, if the flood was really local, how could you repopulate this devastated area? Just, just bring in people and animals that were outside that area. They could just migrate to this area. Really, this whole judgment and ark salvation is needlessly sloppy if this is only a local flood. There's almost no reason for God to do what he did and no reason for it to even be recorded if it's only a local flood. So as I say, there are huge problems with taking Genesis 6 to 9 as describing anything other than a global flood. But in spite of all this, there are many Christian teachers who have and do assert a local flood or at least are open to its possibility. How can this be when the biblical text is so clear? What do you think? The answer has to be that something outside the Bible is affecting their interpretation. Really, it comes down to this. Those who interpret a local flood are open to its interpretation. They want to, or they feel compelled to, accommodate the secular thinking and wisdom of our age. That's the reason. It's not something from the text. It's something from outside the text. Because the prevailing wisdom of our day is naturalist, uniformitarian, and evolutionary. And I'll define each of those terms. Naturalism is the belief that only natural processes, not supernatural, not spiritual, must explain all that occurs in the world today. Uniformitarianism is the belief that all natural processes that we can observe right now can explain everything that took place in the past, including the fossil record and the rock layers. Evolutionary theory sees that not only did life in the world go from molecules to man and from protoplasm to people, but that really most processes, if not all processes, proceed according to a slow and gradual development. Even religion is to be explained in evolutionary terms. People started out without really much organized religion. They were just animists or worshiping spirits. And then they believed in many gods. And then eventually they progressed to believing in only one God until they progress even more until they don't believe in any gods at all. That's where we are today in our truly enlightened age. 
So these ideas, naturalism, uniformitarianism, and evolutionary theory, they are what are considered wise and sophisticated today. And so when the people of this age, scientists especially, when they do research in the fields of geology, so studying the rocks and rock layers, and paleontology, studying the fossils, they bring these assumptions, they bring these worldview components into their study. And what do they conclude? They do not see evidence of a global flood. They see layers of rock and fossils laid down gradually over millions of years that were never disrupted by any global cataclysm. And because this view is predominant and popular, those who hold it ridicule and put pressure on Christians to get on board with what in their minds has been proven clearly as scientific fact. Only unreasonable and antiquated people would still believe in a global flood. I mean, after all, objective science has proven otherwise. And thus, many Christians do today what Christians started to do in the early 1800s. When Bible disbelieving geologists first started to claim that there was no evidence of a global flood in the fossil record, and that there was only evidence of gradual geological change, the formation of the Earth's rock layers took place over millions or billions of years. Under pressure, Christians began placing man's authoritative claims above the claims of the Bible. And this had profound implications. For some, like Thomas Chalmers, who was the inventor of the gap theory, this meant searching for new interpretations in the biblical text that do not come from the text itself. They began to eisegete the Bible when it comes to the flood. For others, though, like Friedrich Schleiermacher, he's the father of theological liberalism, it meant a total denial of the historicity of the Bible. Schleiermacher concluded, you know what? Looking at science and reason, it's clear that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories. It's all there to make us feel our dependence on God. There is a God, Schleiermacher would say, but we cannot know anything definite about him because the Bible is so unreliable. So under pressure, they either reinterpreted the Bible or repudiated the Bible. But there wasn't really a good reason to do that. And therefore, we do not need to proceed the way that these compromising Christians did in the past. Indeed, let us not go their way. Science, science has not disproven the Bible or a global flood. Rather, secular scientists have given interpretations to the data according to their own worldviews. In a sense, they've made sure to discover what they already believe to be true. In fact, their interpretations, according to their worldview, when examined more closely under proper presuppositions, they actually don't make good sense of the scientific data at all. Now, we have come to know, by God's grace, as Christians, that God exists, that the Bible is true in every part, and that Jesus is Lord. We have learned that the Bible is our foundation for seeing and knowing what is true. Therefore, we proceed according to a biblical worldview. We start with the Bible, and we examine the data of the world with the Bible's truth in mind. For that reason, we should not vacillate for a moment on anything that the Bible makes plain. And is a global flood taught plainly in the Bible? It is. The flood was not merely a local event in Mesopotamia or something that occurred on the edge of the Black Sea. 
The biblical text does not allow for such an interpretation. Neither was the flood a tranquil flood. This is another theory. A tranquil flood is the idea that it was a global flood, but it did not disturb at all the millions of years of fossil record in the rock layers of the earth. Of course, that's key because you need that to preserve modern scientific theory. No, it couldn't have been a tranquil flood because a tranquil flood would have been contrary to the laws of physics and would have required God to miraculously keep the, the flood calm for its duration and then remove the waters from the earth without any major erosion taking place. If you're saying there's a flood that did not affect the ground of the earth at all, then you have an extremely miraculous flood, which really contradicts your whole purpose in trying to keep intact naturalist, uniformitarianism, and evolutionary theory. And indeed, the language of the biblical text indicates not a calm flood. We had the fountains of the great deep bursting open, floodgates of the sky being released. This was a tumultuous time on earth, and it was a chaotic flood. Nor was the flood mythical. It was not a grand allegory or legend for Moses, as we've seen. It's presented as detailed history, and it's affirmed by the apostles and even by God himself, the Lord Jesus. As we saw last week, Jesus uses, the Noah, uses Noah's flood as an analogy in the Gospels of his own coming judgment. So if the flood never took place, or the flood was just a big exaggeration, then we have a right to question whether Jesus tells the truth, and whether he's really coming back in judgment. After all, if it was just a myth, then is his coming back a myth? If it was just an exaggeration, is his coming back? Is his judgment going to be exaggerated? Was it exaggerated when he proclaimed it? No, the flood really happened, and it really was global. In fact, this is affirmed in the evidence that we see in the world. Let's consider some extra-biblical data now from a biblical worldview with biblical assumptions and presuppositions. Those are the same thing, but they're using both terms. Let's think about how we interpret what's in the world according to God's word. Since the flood did happen, and because the flood was global, what would we expect to find in the world as a result? What do you think? Yeah, fossils in strange places, especially ocean fossils. What else? Yeah, a lot of fossils buried in, in about the same layer, or even more basically, lots of dead animals, fossils buried all over the earth. Yeah, Rob. Right, yeah, I get you. So evolutionary theory sees that there's a there's a definite progression in which fossils will appear where in the rock layers, but in light of a global flood, we would see that there isn't a clear progression in the complexity of animals and how they were buried. You'll see some animals that were supposed to be earlier that are buried later, and some animals that are supposed to be later are buried earlier. Right, right, so I get you there. And even we would expect if there was a global flood, that the flood would be remembered and many cultures around the world. And you know what? This is precisely what we see. We see all of these things. We do see fossils buried all over the world in various rock layers. 
We do see marine fossils in odd places. You see this picture here? That's on some mountains in Kentucky. And we've got seashells there. And we see them in deserts. And even on Mount Everest, there are marine fossils on Mount Everest. And then we have flood legends. We have flood legends across many cultures. And this makes sense because the flood left only four families to repopulate the earth. Shortly after the flood, about 100 years or so, at Babel, the descendants of these families were scattered all over the world. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they surely told their descendants about what happened in the flood. And so we should not be surprised to see stories similar to the Bible's flood accounts in cultures all over the planet. In fact, we're going to examine a few of those flood legends in just a moment. But before we do, just speculate with me a little bit for a minute. We all played the game telephone. We wouldn't expect flood legends to line up exactly with the Bible. For example, we would expect the major details of the Genesis account to be represented in flood legends around the world. But with some of the more minor details, they would likely be changed, or they might not likely have been passed down accurately, especially when we know that man is imperfect and he has a corrupted heart. So he will likely change the story over time to make himself look better. Let's now examine three actual flood legends that come from around the world. We're gonna look at one from Hawaii, we're gonna look at one from Babylon, and look at one from Assyria. And we don't have time to actually read it the legends themselves, the translations of these ancient texts, but I will give you the main details on the screen. I'll read them to you and see how these flood legends compare to one another and compare to what's given in the Bible. So first we have one from Hawaii. And by the way, these flood legends contain some names of some people that are hard to pronounce. And I don't speak the ancient languages, so I don't know if I'm exactly pronouncing them correctly, but I'll do my best. So in Hawaii, there's a story that after the death of the first man, the earth became wicked. Nu was the only good man left on the earth. And Nu built a canoe with a house on it, and he filled it with animals. The earth was then flooded, and only Nu and his family survived. Nu's canoe ended on Mount Achaia, and Nu offered a sacrifice to the moon, thinking that it was the moon that had saved him. But Kane, the creator god, he descended on a rainbow to correct New's mistake. That's a legend from Hawaii. Now let's look at one from Babylon. According to a Babylonian legend, after the death of Artatos, Zeus reigned and there was a great flood. Zeus received a vision from Kronos where he was told that a flood would come on the 15th day of Dasios. Zisuthros was to build a boat and bring his friends and family aboard along with provisions and birds and four-legged animals. This boat was 3,000 feet long and 1,200 feet wide. By the way, that's more than half a, half a mile long, so this is a huge boat. Zisuthros sent out birds as the flood receded until they returned with muddy feet and then they did not return. Zisuthros offered sacrifices after the flood and was taken to dwell with the gods. So there's one from Babylon. And then finally, here's one from Sumeria. This is the famous Epic of Gilgamesh. 
And this one we have Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim was commanded to build a boat of reeds by the god Ea. Now this boat was to have six decks and to be a cube measuring 200 feet on all sides. Workers were hired to build the boat and they covered it with waterproofer. The boat was loaded with living things and Utnapishtim's friends and relatives. The god Shamash sealed the door and the flood began. The land, according to this legend, was shattered like a pot and all the people turned to clay. The flood lasted six days. And the gods were sorry for sending the flood. The boat landed on Mount Namush and ravens and doves and swallows were released. The animals were left, let off the boat and then Upnapishtim offered sacrifices to the gods. Do you notice commonalities between these floods and between the biblical account? We, in fact, we can do a little bit of comparison here. We do see a number of commonalities in this legend or in these legends. And I'll, I'll just go through these briefly. I know, I know you could pick them out if I asked you. We see that in each of these legends, a divine being sends a flood judgment on the earth. We see a man and his family were saved. We see a man, that man builds a boat. That man takes animals onto the boat. That boat eventually lands on a mountain and the man offers sacrifices after passing through the flood. Now, other details that were consistent with the Bible are in some of these, especially even things about the birds. But the major elements are largely consistent. But what elements are missing compared to the biblical account from these legends? What's one? The size of the boat is not consistent, and the shape of the boat. We have a square, we have a half-mile long boat, we have a canoe with a house on it. What else? Roy, I think I saw your hand. Ah, yes, judgment for sin is definitely missing from these accounts. In fact, it's really interesting. I forget which one it is. I think it might be the one from Babylon. The reason the gods send a judgment on the earth is because man is making too much noise, which is kind of different, right? <laughs> No, there is a seed of truth in there, right? And we know that the Bible says that there was violence on the earth. The earth was filled with violence and violence is, does make a lot of noise. What else? The length of the flood, right? The timing of the flood is not recorded consistently. Six days, according to the Epic of Gilgamesh. What else? Right, the, the, the persons who actually end up going on the ark. And sometimes it's just the family, sometimes it's the family and relatives and friends. That is also not consistent. And who worked on the ark and which animals were brought on the ark. Yeah, a number of different details are not consistent. Here's some other ones. The true creator God is not represented. There is a divine being or divine beings, but not the one God who exists. As we mentioned, the dimensions of the ark are wrong and inconsistent. The details regarding the flood timing are not consistent. God's rainbow promise is not represented in each one. The rainbow does appear in the Hawaiian account, but not the promise. And it's also missing from the other two. And as we noted, the reason for the flood is most noticeably absent from these accounts. It was the wickedness of men and it was the violence of men on the earth. And this is all very interesting, but here's a question People of the earth, scientists, those who study ancient texts, they can look at this. And the question is, 
did these other legends develop from the Bible and from the flood actually taking place, or did the Bible borrow from other cultures? How do we know? And how we can how can we be sure? Now this the answer to this question depends a lot on what you believe about the Bible and what you believe about the world. Now we know that the Bible is the word of God and therefore it must be the original. It must have the original historical record and it must describe something that actually took place. In fact, this, this conclusion is actually supported by just comparing the various legends. What details from these other accounts actually detract from their authenticity? If you were to say, hmm, which one of these accounts is the most reasonable? Which one of these accounts seems to be most realistic in describing what happened? You look at these other ones, what stands out in their accounts that shows you, hmm, there's something off here? Say that again. Right, the cube boat. That's not a very seaworthy vessel. That's something that's very likely to tip over, especially if it's at all a tumultuous flood. In fact, in, in many of these accounts, the ark itself is not very realistic. I mean, a canoe with a house on it, that's not going to do very well. Other things like that uh, appear in these texts. Not only does the Bible contain more details than these other flood legends, but the details make more sense. And now we'll learn more about how the ark is represented in the Genesis account, why it was a seaworthy boat, how it was very practical for the flood. We'll talk about that next lesson. But in comparison to the other flood accounts, what the Bible gives is much more reasonable, makes much more sense. And these details, when you approach them from a biblical perspective, even these differing details in the other accounts, they're not surprising. We would expect as centuries go by that details from the original flood account or flood record being passed down from generation to generation, some of the details would get lost. Some of the details would be exaggerated or simplified. Meanwhile, new elements would be added like different gods or multiple gods according to man's corruption in his search for a religion without the true God. See, one's worldview greatly affects what one does with the data of the flood legends. And there are many more legends beyond these three that I've represented to you. And they do come from all over the world, South America, Europe, Oceania, Africa. We see legends about the flood in all these different places. Now, secularists, someone firmly committed to his naturalist, uniformitarianism, evolutionary presuppositions, he will look at this and say, ah, see, the Bible clearly borrowed from the pagans and is clearly not divine. After all, we have this story in all these different places. Apparently, primitive societies all felt the same need to believe in the divine and to believe in this cataclysm, cataclysmic flood. This is just an ordinary part of religious evolution. Now, this view, while downplaying and twisting the significance of the data of these flood legends, does not really answer well why these flood legends are so widespread culturally and geographically and why the Bible's account is the most reasonable out of the flood legends. Now, someone with a biblical worldview looks at the same data and says, ah, but doesn't this make sense? Because there actually was a flood and because all people are descendants of the survivors of the flood, 
This is why we see the record of the flood disseminated all over the world. And the reason why the Bible's record is so reasonable is because the Bible is a supernaturally inspired, accurate, and authoritative record given by God himself of the flood event and many other things. So a secularist would actually take the evidence of these flood legends and say that detracts from the Bible's believability. But actually, the opposite is true. This is why your worldview and your presuppositions are so important. The presence of the worldwide flood legends and the competency of the biblical account, they only serve to affirm that God did, in fact, once judge the world with a worldwide flood. And really, that's the main point of this lesson today. This is a very apologetic-focused lesson. If we start with the Bible, and if we proceed according to proper presuppositions that are based on the Bible, then we have to acknowledge a global flood. But that is consistent with what we see in the world today, both in the fossil record and in the geological record and even in the flood legends. So we don't need to be hesitant about this, and we certainly don't need to compromise what the Bible says. Now let's consider a few more application questions. Actually, I got, I think about six here. As you interact with people, what is the most likely response to the flood account in Genesis? Think people believe it? What do they think about it? Yeah, certainly, go ahead. Certainly many people will treat it just as a myth. Oh, it never really happened. There's no trace of history here, but probably many more will actually say, you know, this probably did describe a flood, an actual flood. It's just been exaggerated. Well, in the most likely response is that people will say this was a local flood. Though, yes, yeah, some, some will totally say it never happened. It is a little bit ironic when you think about it, though. Our world today is 70% covered by water, and many deny that there ever was a global flood. While Mars is 0% covered by water, and many think that it was once flooded with water. Just a little odd. Number two, as we talk with unbelievers, should we use various flood legends from around the world to prove that the biblical flood really happened? There's prove is underlined there. Though the flood legends are consistent with the flood actually happening, and they do support the Bible's account, they cannot prove that the Bible is accurate. Remember, the text, the biblical text itself is always the best way to show someone what is true because it is the ultimate authority. It shows them reality. So this is what we say. The Bible is true in its accounts of the global flood. And based on that, we would expect to see flood legends around the world, which is what we do see, which affirms the truthfulness of the Bible. However, if these legends did not exist, the Bible would still be completely trustworthy because it is the word of God. So that's to say, this extra biblical evidence, it is valuable and it does affirm the Bible, but the Bible doesn't need it. The Bible does not need to be proved by extra biblical evidence because the Bible proves itself. Number three, what elements of the text of Genesis six to nine could you use to point someone to the global nature of the flood? These are the things we talked about today. The extremely inclusive language, especially about the destruction of life on earth, the description of the rising of the waters and how it covered even the, all the high mountains everywhere under heaven, the 
rainbow covenant promise. And the lack of logic that exists in how people could have saved themselves from the flood if it were really just a local flood without the ark. We can point people to these aspects of the text right in the Bible and with inferences and conclusions that come from the Bible. Now, when talking with a fellow Christian who believes in or has been taught that the flood was only a local event, how should we approach in correcting their understanding? And you know, part of the answer has to be that we should use a prayerful and loving attitude that truly seeks to do them benefit. Just going there looking to win arguments, trying to do someone good. And we should, we should point them to examine the text more carefully. Some have accepted this interpretation without actually looking at the passage themselves carefully. But part of our discussion with this person is going to need to address questions of what has ultimate authority. Can we trust the Bible above all things on the earth? And we will, it will be useful even to talk about what assumptions, what anti-biblical assumptions undergird modern scientific assertions. Now, people love to trust science and science is good if it proceeds according to good assumptions. And when we talk about historical science, origin science, well, most scientists in the world today work with anti-biblical presuppositions like uniformitarianism, and those need to be highlighted and addressed. Number five, the rainbow has been hijacked by many different group, groups as a symbol for their causes. It is used as a multicultural symbol. It's a symbol of hope, a symbol of obtaining wealth without effort, think leprechauns, and even as a symbol for those who engage in a sexually perverse lifestyle, LGBTQ. But how could you use the rainbow as a way to engage someone in a gospel-centered conversation? What do you think? Honestly, we should not be afraid of the rainbow. I mean, it's one of the central aspects of the flood. And it is a great way to get into a conversation about the gospel. If you see someone saying, say, wearing a rainbow patch, rainbow pin, or something with a rainbow on their shirt, you can ask, why do you wear the rainbow? And you can follow it up with, do you know what God says in the Bible about the rainbow? If they seem willing to listen, then you have a good opportunity to talk about God's kindness, God's faithfulness, and God's holiness as exemplified in the flood and also in the salvation of Noah. And that links directly to the gospel. So we can use the rainbow to our advantage. And indeed, how can we connect the flood to the gospel? This is one of the things we've been talking about. We can do the same things with the flood that the New Testament writers did. We can show the holiness of God and the anger of God in judging the wickedness of men. But we can see the kindness of God in wanting to see evil dealt with, but also in preserving Noah and in giving a promise to never flood the earth again. We can show that God promised that he will one day judge the earth again, just as he did in the days of Noah, but not with water, but with fire and with his own coming. We must also show that Jesus is the only savior from that judgment. So as with creation and the fall, so the flood becomes a great way to talk about the good news of salvation in Jesus. That's pretty much what I have for you. Questions about what you heard today? Yeah, Caleb.
say that again. That's a good question. So the question is, are there the other flood legends, other flood records, do they do any of them predate the Mosaic text? And they do, actually. The oldest versions of the Old Testament that we have, and even the time where Moses wrote the, the, the flood account would be would have been around, no, let me say it this way. Moses would have written the flood account in Genesis in the supernaturally inspired word around 1440 BC or 1405 BC. Definitely sometime between coming out of Egypt and the children of Israel entering the promised land. But the Epic of Gilgamesh may have been, probably was written down earlier. And some of the copies we have of it, they don't, I don't think they necessarily predate 1400 BC, but the, the story was probably written down before Moses wrote it down. Now, how significant is that? Well, if you're a secularist, you say, ah, well, then that means that Moses clearly borrowed from the Epic of Gilgamesh or some of those other flood, flood legends. But again, if we proceed according to biblical worldview, that's not a problem at all. You say, it doesn't matter when Moses wrote it. He has the authoritative version. It makes sense that other people would have written it down or talked about it because the flood actually happened. And so it's going to be remembered in different cultures around the world. So as far as I know, we do have some indications that other versions were written down before Moses did. But again, that's not really a problem. A good question, though. Other questions? If you think of any other questions based on today's lesson, be sure to email me. That's all for this week. Next week, we're going to look specifically at the ark. Consider its construction. Consider its shape. We'll Answer the questions, could the ark have really handled the tumultuous waters of the flood? And how did Noah get all those animals on there? So I look forward to talking about that with you. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your reliable word. Lord, the flood really did happen. And the rainbow, that bow in the clouds, it's a constant reminder to us, both of your holiness, but also your mercy and chiefly your faithfulness. God, I pray that as we've been saying in these previous lessons, that we would be careful not to trifle with you, that we would not treat you as an unholy God or a God who's not serious about holiness. You are, but you are also a loving God and you provide a way of salvation to those who turn to you. You did that for Noah and you do that for all of those who will turn to Christ. So I pray that each person listening, God, they would be sure that they are in the ark, so to speak, of Jesus, and that they follow after you, God, that they love you. Lord, I pray that you'd also equip us, make us bold, make us loving to tell others about you so they might be spared from the judgment that is coming. And they might be rescued, just as Noah was rescued. Lord, thank you that you give us confidence in your word, and that, Lord, even the world and, it, and the various evidences in it, the data, it just affirms what your word says. It's because it really happened and because you are true and your word is true. We thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. I'll see you.